0: Absolutely delighted to have today with us an old friend and one of the true gurus of the sovereign debt market, Deborah Zanstra. We've known Deborah for years, in part because she is one of the leading sovereign debt lawyers in the world, but also because she has done an enormous amount of public service. And actually I want to ask her about how she gets the time to do this kind of public service in between uh, being a senior partner at a major global law firm. That seems sort of miraculous, uh, but she has basically led the charge on multiple public initiatives to rescue the global financial architecture, most prominently her work on the collective action clauses. But before we get into the the substance of those kinds of things, uh, I wanted to say welcome to Deborah and ask her if maybe we could begin with just some background on how she became interested in this area because it's a small world. There aren't that many people who are so intensely dedicated to this particular subset of sovereign finance. So Deborah, welcome. And I'm hoping you'll give us some background on how you got hooked into this fascinating area.
1: Thank you, thank you, me too. And thank you, Mark. And I'm absolutely thrilled to um, be speaking with you and and to your students today. And and thank you for having me. Um, I suppose um, I I went to Cambridge um, University in in England uh, just after the, the big bang. Where you know the London financial markets um, became very competitive and. There was a lot of interest from uh, foreign banks to to be more active here. And I started off reading history and um, I could see all my fellow students being really excited about opportunities in the city and in London and, you know, this brave new world that was starting and it slightly intrigued me. So um, I I kind of thought about this and then I became aware through talking to um, undergraduates of law that English law was used as... Uh, the contractual governing law for many uh, arrangements Uh, commercial arrangements and and transactions, raising finance and so on, by parties that had no connection to the UK at all. And indeed, this is the case in New York as well, I think. And so the opportunities that came from that sort of came to me and I decided, right, I'm going to change my degree to law. And I went to see Professor Sir John Baker, who is one of England's most preeminent scholars of English legal history, and um, uh, convinced him, thankfully, that um, I, I would change to law. And I haven't really looked back since. And Obviously, um, I don't know how it works quite in, in the US, how early students start to look for positions in law firms, but in, in England it, at university, people already start to look for training positions. And I really wanted to join the firm that I perceive to be the most international with the largest network of overseas offices and Um, identified Clifford Chance, the firm that I'm a partner at, as as the firm that that would deliver that. And I'm half Spanish, half English. I grew up in Italy and in Switzerland. And so the global nature of the work this firm does and um, the people that work here and the diversity and and mix of nationalities really appealed to me. So then I joined and um, I meandered into the capital markets banking area, which um, I'm a bit of a procrastinator. So I'm very much driven by transactions (laughs) And I started to see that there were people here that were working on the Asian financial crisis, on the GKO crisis, um, that there was a thing called the London Club of Creditors where the banks that had come to London post the big bang were often representing themselves in sovereign debt workouts. And um, finally Argentina happened in 2001. So I did everything I could in the firm to um, uh, get to know the partners that were working in that area, which uh, I know you know many of them, but included Keith Clark and Martin Hughes and Cliff Godfrey and the one that I uh, worked most closely with, Andrew Yarny. And I was really, um, you know, impressed by his integrity and intellect and the diplomatic nature of, of the sort of stance that lawyers have to take in, in, in sovereign debt workouts. And um, I stayed in that group and uh, have really. You know tried to take forward the very healthy um, sovereign debt CV that I inherited from my very uh, eminent predecessors.
0: So w- when I started in this sovereign debt world in the mid-1990s during the Mexican financial crisis, this was a world that was almost completely dominated in both England and in the U.S. by older white men. And uh, I I mean, I think uh, Wanda Olson at Cleary was a partner and uh, Antonia Stolper uh, was a partner, but it it was a very, very small number of women who were leading transactions. And a lot of the work was, you know, negotiating in, the, I mean, uh, back then, it wasn't even a metaphor in the smoke-filled rooms, because a lot of the negotiations in Latin America, everybody w- was smoking. So I'm hoping that this podcast uh, and your career will serve as something of an inspiration to our women students, uh, some of whom are very good. Uh, actually, I'd like to think all of whom are very good, and have an exciting career, but I, might you speak a little bit uh, to uh, what it was like uh, to rise up the ranks as, as a woman? I mean, I don't really understand understand or know the sort of magic circle culture in England and maybe it's very egalitarian and uh, there were a lot of women at the top uh, even when you joined, but certainly that was not, not the case in the big New York law firms.
1: Yes, I I think that 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 was the same here and to some extent still is like that. There are many, many more women partners and a much greater focus on ensuring opportunities for, you know, up and coming uh, senior associates from uh, all minorities, actually, uh, if you classify women (laughs) as one such group. Um, But I have to say I was I was very lucky um, that the firm was very supportive. Uh, in my career, I have spent time in London, in Madrid, in New York. I wanted to move around. They helped me with that. I did a couple of client secondments and they helped me with that. And I suppose I felt most pressure in my trajectory when I had children. And I've, I've been very blessed to have three lovely girls. And, you know, that means you have to be very organized and um, look ahead in, in in your diary, planning very carefully. Uh, sometimes block things out so that you can be there for your you know children as a mum when the school plays are on and so forth. Um, and um, I, I, I it's it's been it's been it's been good. I would say you know I, I always encourage um, younger lawyers to to just keep at it and. I've had some very good mentors, um, men as well as women, I have to say. Um, and, you know, now we live in a world where there's a much greater uh, focus and understanding of these issues and, you know, creating a fair play and opportunities and, and and not stereotyping and unconscious bias has to go and all of those things. So I think for your students, it will be, you know, much, much easier. And also, you know, I, I, I I, I'm very sort of happy that we've had two um, heads of the IMF that you know are women, um, and often I mean it amuses me when I receive uh, subscription agreements, you know, or, or documents related to a bond issue and that You get the creep of, you know, him, etc. And I always say to my lawyers, "Do you know that the Minister of Finance is a man?" And you know, quite often now they come back and they say, oh, "I'm really sorry, I should have checked." <laughs> you know? So you see a lot of um, women uh, ministers of finance, in, you know, including in Africa and middle and low-income countries, which is just fantastic. So I think the world is, um, you know, really moving in the right direction. So incredibly encouraging to. Any female students that you have to, to just think that you know, they can get there as as, as as much and as easily as the next person.
2: So, Deborah, Me Too had mentioned in the introduction all of the public service oriented work that you have done in, in conjunction with your, your legal career. And I know one of the things we were excited to talk to you about uh, relates to efforts to reform the what I'm just going to call collective action clause uh, that's you know, baked into most euro area sovereign debt. And, and I think a lot of our listeners will be familiar with the basic, the, the, the idea underlying uh, CACs as contract terms in particular, but maybe less familiar with the kind of treaty-based collective action clause in the euro area and in particular less familiar with the the efforts to change it to improve it and and those are in particular i think what we want to talk about but i'm wondering if you can kind of lead us into that discussion by telling us how those treaty-based collective action clauses came into existence what they were trying to solve Uh, And then maybe we can talk about what's going on with them now.
1: Um, Sure, Um, so I suppose there have been two two major efforts sort of in recent years, Um, but by the time of of the Greek crisis, um, Euro area uh, bonds already had collective action clauses, the, the old sort of ICMA form, Uh, where um, they were governed by um, foreign law, Uh, but obviously cognizant of the fact that most uh, Euro area member states were um, issuing bonds under domestic law. And as the Greek crisis kind of unfolded and escalated, as you know, uh, the Euro area established the Stability mechanisms which were put in place effectively to strengthen economic and monetary union in the face of a concern that the Greek crisis uh, might not just uh, be obviously incredibly problematic for Greece and its debt crisis, but also cause major contagion for other euro area member states that um, were using the the euro as their uh, national currency. So, Um, There was this effort, I suppose, as the Greek crisis unfolded to put in place these uh, mechanisms, entities within the euro area sort of architecture that would provide financial assistance to euro area member states that needed financial assistance and would fund themselves in the capital markets um, uh, to support those financings and as part of the Trajectory that that led from the establishment of the European Financial Stability Facility in the first instance, and then the European Stability Mechanism. Thought was given to tools that would also um, facilitate the restructuring of sovereign debt, should that nevertheless be necessary. And so, in the first treaty establishing the European Stability Mechanism, there was an article introduced that. Uh, established that all Euro-area member states uh, would adopt into their Euro-area government securities with a maturity of one year um, the Euro-area Model Collective Action Clause, and uh, that came into being uh, or or was taken up from uh, the beginning of uh, January 2013. And that collective action clause, um, I I suppose, is a little bit different from the ICMA standard collective action clause, in that in particular um, it just included um, what your students might know as the two or two-limb or double-limb voting mechanism. Um, So, which requires both a positive vote above an individual series threshold at the level of each affected individual bond issuance together with an overall aggregated positive vote above a certain threshold by reference to all debt securities uh, brought into uh, a voting pool. And so that is now the norm in your area collective action clauses in bonds. And then I suppose we had uh, the unraveling of the Greek crisis, holdouts uh, in that situation we had the efforts internationally to introduce aggregation um, across all potential debt securities being brought into one voting pool through the ICMA uh, template um, collective action clauses and so the euro area decided at the end of 2018 to try and um, upgrade maybe we could call it that its own Euro area model clause by introducing into that clause also single limb aggregation. Um, and Deborah,
2: was was there a sense that the dual limb approach was really deeply flawed, or is your sense more that there was a kind of an appreciation that there might be benefits to having uh, the option to conduct uh, an aggregated vote across all of the, the bond series.
0: Can I just uh, add in, uh, I, one of the questions I've had about this, building on Marx, is you know, whether, as he put it, whether there was a flaw or whether there was value in just having a standardized provision all across the world.
1: Mm, I think I would. I, th- I think the euro area approaches these things uh, very much with its own hat on, if you like. In all the discussions that um, I took part in, and I was supporting ESM, who was um, asked by the EFC committee on EU sovereign debt markets to sort of clothe the baby, as it were, that the focus of the discussions is always on euro area and its objectives and the contributions made uh, in the discussions by its member states, which individually also come from a slightly different place because everyone's issuing under their own domestic law system. So I think there was an appreciation that internationally um, ICMA had published uh, a new standard and that it was different from the euro area standard. But uh, I don't think that was the main driver actually for the euro area work. When we had first engaged uh, with uh, the EFC committee on EU sovereign debt markets back in, I think it was almost 2011, about um, what a a new euro area model CAC might look like. um, There had been discussions back then uh, as to doing uh, a CAC with single limb features in it. And I think at the time that just didn't work for, you know, the committee and didn't uh, fit in with um, the, the sort of mindset and the thinking um, of, of, of the member states. Obviously, you know, the, a road was traveled because not only did the euro area publish the model CAC, but also countries in each Case did an analysis as to whether they needed to supplement their domestic legislation, whether there were any constitutional constraints around single limb aggregation, whether the opinions could be obtained from you know the attorney general in each country or equivalent to support the enforceability of uh, the mechanism, and so forth. So I think um, you know in the intervening years that um, there seemed to be uh, a sort of road travel that allowed for um, the, 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 the more broad mechanism, if you like, to, to, to be one that, that could be considered. Um, now, that is not yet in place in the sense that the amendment to Article 12 is coming in through, which originally required the adoption of the first area model CAG, is coming in through an amendment to the ESM treaty and that treaty needs to be uh, ratified in each Euro area member state. And there's a process being gone through um, the Euro area member states for that ratification. So at the moment, although the new Euro area model CAC with the single immigration was meant to come in at the beginning of this year, it's now been delayed until two months after the uh, or the first day of the second month after the last Euro-Area member state has ratified the ESM treaty. Deborah, if if I may, uh,
0: before we go to break, I know we're supposed to go to break now, and we promise we we'll would let you go in a reasonable amount of time, but uh, just one last question, uh, which is a non-technical question, which is just, you know, this Euro-Area CAC initiative from uh, academics perspective is one of the biggest changes in contracts in in the history of the sovereign debt market. And my guess is that this is, you know, designing contract terms for the whole world or a significant portion of the world across civil law systems and common law systems uh, in bonds that, ha- you know, for the most part, didn't seem to have any contract provisions is not the kind of, profit-making work that most lawyers in uh, high-end practice engage in. And although you probably won't admit it, I'm guessing that this was not the most remunerative. Like you're incredibly busy and uh, in high demand. How do you make time to do this? I mean, this is an enormous enterprise. How how, how do you fit it in?
1: <laughs> I, I think it really matters. You know, I, I think, This is just a small element to enhance the stability of the euro area. But I think it it really matters. I think countries being able to access the capital markets in a a safe space and in a neutral pricing space uh, and being able to include facilitators should things go wrong um, really matters. And as you know, there's no international treaty. Uh, for restructuring sovereign debt, so we're sort of left at the moment with contractual mechanisms and uh, so I I I think it's top of my list of the kinds of things that you know I, I think I can add value to and I, I pick you up on the point about civil law jurisdictions you know what's interesting about the Euroarea CAC is all the thought that has gone to reflect input from different uh, civil law jurisdictions and, and also Ireland of course which is not a civil law jurisdiction as such and so you can see the, 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 the additional thought that, that that brought to the table through the expanded, uniformly applicable investor safeguards, which are much more granular than you know what we had to do in the context of the ICMA CACs. So that's interesting to, to, to see. Um, and also, you know, um, there were one or two features that, for example, the, the redesignation feature, which was sort of dropped. And, and, and that was, I think, completely coincidental, but obviously came into its own in, in, in the case of the Ecuador and Argentina restructurings. So it, it was good to see that we had, uh, you know, reflected something that might have been um, quite sensitive to the market.
2: Well, let's take a short break. And then when we when we come back, maybe we can talk about some developments in a slightly different sphere, but that are related going on in New York. But uh, we'll take a short break first. So, neighbor, when we left off, we were talking about the changes to the Euro Area Collective Action Clause. And I wanted to ask about a development that has been introduced in Albany uh, as a piece of legislation in New York, which in a really simple reductive sense could be described as kind of a similar effort to build a contractual restructuring mechanism into the law governing uh, an instrument, in this case, New York law, only in some ways a, a quite ambitious effort, um, and one that I know you have given a lot of of thought to. So I'm hoping you can tell us a little bit about that bill in New York, the um, New York model CAC law, whatever it's it's called. Uh, And then um, uh, tell us a little bit about how we should think of that effort.
1: Sure. Um, So I I think it is ambitious. Uh, It's an effort by certain New York lawmakers to introduce um, into New York banking, York by way of a new Article 7, um, a sovereign debt restructuring mechanism. So it's much more than a, a CAC, much, much more. And, and therein, I, I have some concerns. Um, I think it's, uh, the CACs are a voting mechanism, and everything else that is related to analysing the debt sustainability of our country, what debt needs to be restructured, if any, and how and on what terms and what information creditors are given. And the interplay between the official sector and the private sector and multilaterals and so forth is dealt with through, as you know, other policies that either the fund or the Paris Club uh, works to and, and so forth. But this legislation purports to, without bringing in existing norms and practices, in in many aspects, um, provide a a sort of broader framework. Um, And essentially, a country would petition an independent body nominated by the New York State Finance Committee. Uh, to come into this regime, and it would um, say that its debt was not sustainable, but on what basis, it's not clear, Uh, the IMF, the Paris Club are not referred to at all, none of the work that they would do in terms of DSA, debt treatment, comparability of treatment is, is sort of acknowledged, and There are, in my view, a lot of potential problems with it. Partly the definitions are are just not there that we would need in terms of what what is a a subnational, what is good faith, uh, what sort of debt would fall into the... scope, what is domestic versus external, secured versus unsecured, um, and so on. But obviously, lawyers can can look at that and try and and, and sort of address those issues. But there's other more fundamental problems, such as it's envisaged that there will be a comprehensive audit of the debt and that the um, supervisory body will appoint a third party to do that, but there's no governance or scope of work or details as to who would be paying for for, for that work, Uh, we would imagine such a party would need to be indemnified, would that be covered by the state, by creditors, Um, and what would be the scope of of an audit, you know, as you know, verifying debt can be a very lengthy and time-consuming and complex uh, process, Um, is it going to introduce uh, risks of uh, declarations of illegitimacy and, and so forth? And where will creditors stand while this debt is still uh, being verified, what will happen to, to, to bonds, will people be expected not to trade in that period, you know when typically that's something that is, 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 is only done in a very limited circumstances in, 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 in the context of a, a workout. So that's a a big issue. And then I think the actual cram down uh, mechanism that they're envisaging and and the splitting of creditor groups is uh, potentially um, going to create some incentives that will be detrimental to the process. And who will be in scope in terms of the jurisdictional analysis, I think is also um, very ambitious and, and not very practical because it's supposed to capture New York law-governed agreements, and uh, any other jurisdictions that purport to introduce this same mechanism in their own jurisdictions, but suppose no one does, then that's going to mean that you're not going to have a comprehensive restructuring, you're just going to have a mechanism for New York law-governed instruments, and you know that will create some really tricky um, disincentives. So I think there are a number of issues that haven't been thought through properly. And and the key thing really is I think there hasn't been any consultation. And as you know, in the past, when we've looked at CACs, when we've looked at, you know, clarifying what passu meant, when we've looked at debt transparency, when we've looked at, you know, um, other things, um, we've had consultations with the fund, with the Paris Club, with private creditors. It's had some levels of formality and informality that vary depending on the um uh, policy initiative but there has been consultation and a study of unintended consequences and what does it mean in terms of market access, in terms of triggering an exit strategy in terms of you know ratings, implications, etc. And I feel this is lacking that somewhat. <laughs> so I mean if it goes into committee and it gets some traction, maybe that's when you know you and your students can sort of make submissions and and, and, uh, advocate that further thought needs to be given as to unintended consequences. But at the moment, I'm not aware that much of that has happened.
2: But but aside from that, you like it.
1: (laughs) I mean, it's audible in the sense that You know, we have been through a pandemic. There are incredibly uh, high levels of of, of debt stock in in many vulnerable countries. I, I do understand, although I have to say that the New York State legislature seeking to use New York State police powers because it might be detrimental to New York if a country defaults on its sovereign debt and there's contagion even for me is a bit of a, a stretch, but um, you guys will be much closer to that than I am. I think it could raise some quite interesting, you know, federal to state law um, uh, issues in particular because if the regime is implemented for a particular country that seeks to come under it, it would then have retrospective effect in terms of contractual terms and. As we know, we always like to introduce reforms where they're forward looking and do not uh, affect existing contracts, so that really um, becomes very um, negative for for all stakeholders in the capital markets and and, and banking markets, and this seeks to be retrospective insofar as uh, particular um, lending arrangements uh, are in scope and and, and come uh, before the, the the supervisory body.
0: The whole thing of the uh, the idea of the New York State Legislature, from what little I know about it, having anything to do with anything important is absolutely terrifying. Uh, but um, I didn't I didn't say that. You know, just in case they actually get some real power, but I I'm, I find this whole thing just, uh, just a little bit loony. But maybe just, maybe but Mark also, and
1: I. <laughs> but it's also strange because you know it, it's been put forward just at the time when. We've had the G20 Paris Club uh, initiative on on debt service suspension for the world's poorest countries, you know, the move to the common framework, which is the first time that we've seen for a long time cooperation between um, Paris Club and and non-Paris Club members. And so it's not as if the world was doing nothing, you know, that there was a major debt initiative at the level of the G20 Um, and there's, you know, lots of people continuing to think about how the architecture can be improved you know that the G7 is doing some work at the moment on um contemplating including majority lender voting provisions for changes to payment terms in loans which you know to date have required unanimous consent by lenders and so there there's a bit of a gap uh, arguably and so there is some work being done uh, via the contractual route to see whether you know there could be some acceptance by uh lenders and, and, and borrowers to 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 expand existing majority lender provisions to make changes to payment terms and you know there's initiatives on debt transparency etc so um it's not like we were doing nothing <laughs> so as a community so it it, it seems a bit odd and you know my concern is uh, obviously there's that which may not get traction but interesting nevertheless the french have um legislated in this space the belgians have legislated you know the uk historically had a a very narrow piece of uh, legislation in relation to to hippic debt but that was very narrowly construed but you know if if, if major countries and 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 so on start to legislate individually in this space there's going to be very significant market fragmentation and I think the problem with that is it leads to uncertainty and predictability more complexity and so then I think everyone will suffer but maybe I don't know if you agree with that.
0: Uh, I, I I definitely agree I think this is very very scary but to, to move us to some of the more um, positive aspects of what's been going on in global cooperation in, in in this area i was wondering if you could give us um, the basics of what's going on with the common framework and the uh, debt suspension initiative uh, i my understanding is uh, they are set to expire and that they really, they extended only to the very poorest countries, the so-called IDA countries and maybe one other country and that that very few countries used it and this is going to expire and yet we have historically high global debt levels that we face and many countries potentially on the brink of a crisis. So, can you give us a sense in the... The few minutes we have left of what's happening now on the global cooperation front and what should we expect in the near future?
1: Um, sure. I mean, the, the, yeah, as you say, the debt service suspension initiative um, uh, came to an end in, in, at the end of 2021. I think. About $5 billion uh, relief was given to about 40 countries, but that was obviously by the official sector pri- primarily. Um, the common framework will go on. I mean, I think that's in place for as long as it's needed. It's not It's not time-bound. Um, but it's, you know, very much more a return to the existing architecture in terms of the sequencing of, you know, a country having a crisis, deciding to go to the Paris Club, IMF programme, um, DSA, comparability of treatment, etc. So I think the new thing about it is that you've got non-Paris Club members participating, and in particular, China and India and Saudi Arabia. And this is, you know, seen, I think, as as positive. And we've seen in the case of the countries that have already come forward, um, Chad, Zambia and Ethiopia, that Paris club creditor committees are being set up, which includes these non Paris club members, so I, I think that's a, a good thing, but. Um, I, I you know. In terms of other policy work that's been done, the IMF is looking at its lending into areas policy, the IF is updating its principles on stable capital flows and sovereign debt restructuring There's that major initiative I mentioned, uh, by the private sector on on debt transparency, but these are all just incremental updates and improvements, I think, on the existing architecture. So as countries face difficulties, if it is going to become more prevalent, I think uh, the common framework is really the the, the sort of framework that they have to um, engage uh, with the official sector and, and hopefully in tandem with private sectors to um, seek some um, debt relief or or, or at least some reprofiling. But otherwise, I think it's going to come down to good debt management practices uh, at the level of middle and low income countries that may be facing some challenges. And DMOs will have to ask themselves whether they should be relying just on concessional financing. I mean, interestingly with the DSSI, You know, you say, well, only 40 countries benefited from it, you know, why not more? Well, that's because some countries didn't want to come into it and others um, were just relying on concessional financing anyway. Um, Private sector participants created some tools to facilitate engagement with them. But, you know, actually countries on the whole did not want to go down that route because of concerns around market access and, Maybe uh, it just wasn't worth, you know, the, the, the amount of, 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 of um, debt relief that there would have been on, on offer. Um, so I think we're left with what we have, Me Too. Um, I, I, and of course, the challenge is not just that they're in increasing debt levels, but also that a lot of countries need new finance to meet their budget requirements in challenging economic times, but also to... know meet sustainable development goals and so forth and so that's the other challenge they face and my answer for that is you know as much as possible um if the multilaterals could work to facilitate blended finance and you know finding ways to attract um uh, private investment uh based on some sort of risk sharing that, that would be good and of course it's the whole area of esg financing which is um, something that might be very attractive for investors and might give some countries that still want to do something in terms of their climate uh, obligations and commitments access to to external uh, funding. The other thing is, you know, in terms of debt management, I'm very excited by opportunities around uh, monetizing natural capital and natural wealth, which I think is, you know, something that people could think about more. Um, And then, you know, very niche, but debt for nature swaps are interesting Uh, transactions where uh, it links in, I suppose, that ESG versus kind of managing um, increasing debt levels in, in, in certain countries that might be a possibility.
2: Well, Deborah, thank you so much for taking the time to join us today. I I confess I'm a little worried, I guess, and maybe I can ask you just to sort of share your own reaction uh, uh, as we wrap up. I'm a little worried at the fact that many of the mechanisms that you've described are relying on incremental improvements to what came before. When I fear that as interest rates go up and we sort of encounter the longer term economic consequences of COVID, that countries won't be able to maintain the market access that they need and that we might have a a sort of more serious problem on our hands that requires a fairly Fairly significant efforts to restructure debt. I, I I don't I don't sort of want to handicap that, but I I do wonder whether we have the tools in place to respond to a a scenario like that. And I'm just wondering what your what your thoughts are on the next couple of years as interest rates rise and. Should we expect countries to continue muddling through the way they've been able to muddle through in the low interest rate environment? Or are you concerned we're going to see more stress on the, the debt management tools that we have?
1: I think what we have, bar the gaps that have been you know, identified uh, in relation to non-bonded debt and maybe giving a bit more thought to subnational debt and so forth, is pretty good. Um, I also think that um, you know, bondholders uh, in the markets that, that, that invest in these products are quite motivated to get together, to um, form committees, to be available for discussions with sovereigns and so forth. Um, what I do what, what worries me is that I sense on the one hand, a slight frustration on the official sector side. I think there was some frustration that there wasn't more of a private sector um, participation in the DSSI. Although I think that it was misconceived that that would actually be possible. I I think they had underestimated the fact that you you have all these cross defaults and um, that there's sort of contagion issues. Uh, around the sort of interplay even between official sector and, 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 and private sector lending arrangements. Um, and also and as I said that a lot of countries were just relying on concessional financing anywhere in that group. so by its very nature that the, the private sector participation was limited by, by that fact alone. Um, but, but, but I, th- I sense that frustration on, on, on the official sector side and then on the private sector side, you know, I, I sense frustration that there isn't more uh, information sharing, more parallel discussions with the private sector when the official sector is already having discussions with sovereign debtors that may be struggling. Um, there is, you know, a desire to be more involved in the DSA in the modelling and the assumptions and to, to just be have a seat at the table earlier. But I think the DSSI, there was a lot of discussion between the official sector and private sector. Uh, you know, many meetings took place. The IAF led on developing a number of tools to assist um, participation by the private sector and the DSSI were that to be uh, welcomed by the, the sovereign debtors that would themselves have had to instigate it, but then didn't. Um, and so I just think we have to build on that sort of dialogue, uh, increase meetings, you know, between the Paris club and and the private sector and, and just keep that dialogue going so that, um, when, uh, debt treatment is necessary, people are more aligned and informed and there's more transparency and they're able to react uh, more quickly. Thank
0: you so much, Deborah. This has just been incredibly fun and educational and inspiring. Uh, I hope this is the first of many occasions on which you will come and talk to us. I, I am, like Mark, somewhat pessimistic about what the next few years are going to bring in terms of the number of the crisis, of crises that are facing us. But the silver lining is that those of us who work on sovereign debt restructurings and uh, reforms to the international architecture will have a lot to do. So uh, I hope you're not planning on going on a lot of vacations because I suspect that you will be leading a lot of the uh, rescue initiatives that we see. But thank you so much for coming to join us.
1: It's been my pleasure, and um, I look forward to um, further conversations with you guys.